The first reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 24 to 29, and it can be found on page 135 of the Church Bibles. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The second reading is taken from Proverbs, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, and then 32 to 36. It can be found on page 641 of the Church Bible. Does not wisdom cry out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city at the entrance, she cries aloud. To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all humanity. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, Set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. To the discerning, all of them are right. They are upright to those who have found knowledge. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you can desire can compare with her. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me, find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me, 
harm themselves, and all who hate me love death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Very nice to see you. Let's pray that God would speak into our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your presence with us. And we ask you to send your Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to make us teachable, and to help me as I speak, to speak faithfully of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing this little sermon series about how to remain secure, how to be secure and fruitful when the world is shaking, and to make it more personal, when our own personal world is shaking. And today I want to talk about some habits that resilient, fruitful disciples have. Originally it was going to be four habits, but I've got myself under control and it's three. <laughs> and the fourth habit I'll carry into next week instead. Jesus doesn't just expect his followers to survive. He expects us to thrive, to bear fruit that will last. And I want to begin just with the reassurance that he has given us everything that we need to live well. But I also want to say this. Our personal decisions do make a difference. There are decisions that you and I will make about how we do life that will definitely impact whether we do run a good race to the end or not, whether we are fruitful, as fruitful as we could be or not. In my own personal quiet time, I've recently been reading the book of Hebrews, and one of the themes of a book of Hebrews is the urgency and necessity to keep going against all sorts of opposition. And I don't think I'd ever noticed a striking little phrase comes in chapter 10 where the writer says, don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Now there's a decision you and I could make which would be <laughs> not good. You could decide things that will result in throwing away your confidence. I don't think I'm giving any secrets away. You can tell by looking at me, I'm guessing, that when it comes to talking about sporting success, I don't have much personal to talk about. But I enjoy being an armchair watcher of sport. And one of the things I like watching is the Masters golf at Augusta. And I can remember a, a good player being interviewed in between rounds, and he said this. He said, I'm going to stick to my game plan. I'm not going to worry about what other competitors are going to do. I'm not going to worry about the weather or the things that I can't control, but I'll focus on what I can control. And I think that kind of ethos works for us as followers of Christ. There are many things that you and I can't control as we set out each day to follow Christ. But the factors I'm talking about now, in the following few minutes, are within our grasp. 
if you and I choose to incorporate the three habits that I'm going to talk about, we will run a good race, we will finish well. We don't want to be people who snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. That, that's not God's intended plan for us. So let's kick off. Here's, here's the first of three habits, the first of three points. And they're not connected, they're, they're all different, the three points. The all-important word is my first heading. The all-important word. There was a day when someone came to Jesus and asked Jesus, what is the most important command? It was a very shrewd question, really. And Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the all-important word is all. Did you pick it up? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Jesus calls for complete devotion, complete commitment. Friends, it, it takes extreme trust to follow Jesus every day. To follow him takes intentionality or we'll be blown off course. Now, I've got rather a long example, but it makes a point and therefore I think it justifies its length. And it, it's picked up from a letter that I read written to the Times uh, some years ago by a disgruntled climber of Everest. And what made him disgruntled was there had just been an article published which suggested that people who get to the top of Everest are to a penny. It, it's little more than a stroll in the park. It's routine. And evidently for this correspondent, uh, that just didn't wash. And this is what he wrote in response. So, 1,300 have reached the summit of Everest and improved equipment has made it its conquest, quote, almost routine. When I was on Everest North Side in 2001, it didn't seem routine to me. For a start, it's exceptionally dangerous. 15% of those who reach a summit don't return alive. From the top camp to the summit, one has to mentally be prepared to step over the frozen bodies of earlier climbers. Forget being guided at this altitude, you're largely on your own. Nor is it just the less experienced who perish. That year, four died, including an experienced Russian on the north and Babu Shiri, perhaps the strongest Sherpa climber of all time, who died in a crevice quite low on the south side. Two of the most experienced climbers in our team reached the summit but collapsed with exhaustion just 100 meters below and had to spend the night in that most desolate of places. Their lives were saved by the heroic and professional efforts of, of their teammates who were in a position to help, plus an unselfish trio of American climbers who, who sacrificed their summit attempt to help. If you wish to climb Everest, you'll need a good working knowledge of rope handling, abseiling, jumaring, ice axes, crampons, and oxygen equipment. You'll need to be confident in your ability to avoid snow blindness, sunburn, frostbite, altitude sickness, 
falling into a crevice or being buried by avalanches or slumping seracs. You will hope to escape minor illnesses such as laryngitis, which are notoriously difficult to throw off at altitude. You will have trained and planned for up to a year in advance and be fitter than ever before. And unless you belong to a sponsored team, you will spend upwards of 38,000 pounds on your hard-earned money. You will have to live in a small tent for six weeks at altitude where the oxygen pressure is about half what you're used to. And the days can be blisteringly hot or plagued with blizzards and the nights minus 20 degrees centigrade. You'll have to stay long enough to acclimatize but not so long that you lose too much body weight. You'll leave advanced base camp knowing that it'll take five days to reach a summit but not knowing whether the weather will hold. And finally, you'll also be aware that if you have to turn back as most do, it's unlikely that you'll have the strength to make a second attempt. Some routine. Well, the point that he's making and why I dragged you through that long letter is following Christ similarly takes a lot of preparation, devotion, and commitment. It is not routine. It is not routine. It takes dedication and surrender. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your true and proper worship. The great Baptist preacher, Spurgeon, puts it like this when making an appeal during one of his sermons. If you'd be saved by the blood of Jesus, you're not from this day to choose your own pleasures, nor your own ways, nor your own thoughts, nor to serve yourselves, nor to live for yourselves or your own aggrandizement. If you'd be saved, you must believe what he tells you, do what he bids you, and live only to serve and honor him. That's pretty straight, isn't it? That's very straight. But those are our marching orders. What do fruitful followers of Christ have in common? Right down the ages, right around the world. Is it that they're people of high IQ? No, I don't think so. Is it that they're rich? No. Is it that they're poor? No. Is it that they're powerful? No. Is it they live in a certain country? No. <clears throat> Is it that they have a particular personality or temperament? No. But they all have this in common. They are fully committed to Christ with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul, and all their strength, without reservation. Let me put the opposite to you. He followed Jesus at a distance. He's asking for trouble. That is a little phrase that was used of Peter shortly before Jesus is crucified. It's such a stupid way of trying to live the Christian life. It's like, it's like trying to see how slowly you can go when you're on a bicycle, to see how slowly you can go before you fall off. Nuts, you will fall off. Or it's like when you leave this church deciding that you're going to walk with one foot on the pavement and one foot on the road. People would look at you and think you're an idiot. It, and it's dangerous and it looks stupid. 
if you decide to live as half a follower of Christ, with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world, you're going to look similarly stupid. And it's equally dangerous. There's no need to live life like that. Jesus calls us without embarrassment or apology to say to us, if you're going to follow me, it'll cost you everything and you owe me everything and it's going to be 24-7, 365 days of a year, except in a leap year when it's one more. So that's the very first point. It, it, it's simple, all in. It's the safest, best, most fruitful way and most enjoyable way to follow Christ. The second habit is completely different. It's to seek wisdom and to walk in her ways. You'll know about the Californian gold rushes and uh, how when gold was discovered in California, people just flocked to that part of America from both within America and from abroad. Because the idea of gold and the value of gold was so great. But you also know that the book of Proverbs and elsewhere in the scripture tells us that wisdom is more precious than gold. So would you leave home for wisdom? Would you start digging for wisdom? Something more valuable than gold is here. Let me remind you some of the verses from Proverbs. Proverbs 8. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare to her. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. The price of acquiring wisdom is costly, but the price of living in folly is higher. You know, because I can't ever resist this quote from the coronation service, you know that wisdom is found in the scriptures. And I do love it that King Charles and the late Queen Elizabeth II, when they were presented with the Bible, it was accompanied by these words. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing the world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Now, you're probably very, very familiar with that. But I learned something new last night when I was checking on this particular prayer. I learned that up and including, no, up to the coronation of King Edward VII, the prayer went on like this. It was shortened for his coronation because he was ill and they were trying to shorten the service. And these words have never been put back. But it goes on like this. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this book, that keep and do the things contained in it. For these are the words of eternal life, able to make you wise and happy in this world nay, wise unto salvation, and so happy forevermore. And the point that's being made here is, it's not enough to know the words of God. You have to choose to do them, to obey them. 
And I suppose the most obvious part of scripture that actually addresses how to thrive when the world is shaking comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus tells that very telling story of the two houses, doesn't he? In fact, exactly what he says is this. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house and it didn't fall because its foundations were on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a fool who built his house on sand. And the rain came down and the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. Now getting God's word into us will take time every day. I've already referenced when Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. It begins with the word hear, which means listen. Listen to God speak, and you'll do that through God's word. And it's comforting to realize that obedience is more important than intelligence. That revelation is more significant than education. God is able to open the scriptures to anyone who will be still and want to listen. And it does seem that the impact of God's word upon us grows by compound interest. The more obedient you and I are, the more he will reveal himself through his word. If we put our fingers in our ears, then it's very unlikely that God will be able to tell us much of, of worth. And when we read this book of scriptures, we don't read the book to get through it. We read it so that the book can get through us. I've already quoted uh, Charles Spurgeon, but I want to tell you an anecdote that he tells in one of his sermons. It's so telling. And it, it, it illustrates the importance of enjoying God's word and letting it actually connect with us in our hearts. He tells a story, and this is it. I remember once feeling many questions as to whether I was a child of God or not. I went into a little chapel and I heard a good man preach. He was a simple working man. I heard him preach and I made my handkerchief sodden with my tears as I heard him talk about Christ and his precious blood. When I was preaching the same things to others, I was wondering whether this truth was mine, but while I was hearing for myself, I knew it was mine, for my very soul lived upon it. I went to that good man and I thanked him for the sermon. He asked me who I was. When I told him, he turned all manner of colors. Why? He said, sir, that was your own sermon. I said, yes, I knew it was. It was good of the Lord to feed me with the food that I'd prepared for others. I perceived I had a true taste for what I myself knew to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that lovely? And the point he was making is 
true for all of us. It's you have to let God's word actually impact you, actually connect with you. you. When you read in the scriptures that God loves you so much, let him love you so much. When you read that he's forgiven you, let him forgive you. When you read that he has good plans for you, let him reveal those plans. Well, finally, finally, I'm going to take us into an area that we very rarely talk about, but which scriptures do not shy away from. If we're going to be fruitful, if we're going to remain faithful, if we're going to be strong and secure and resilient, there's a whole set of character traits that we're going to need to develop and God will have to graft into us. And frankly, I don't like the sound of them, but they are required on voyage. We're going to need to cultivate perseverance and endurance. Can you think of anyone who achieves anything of note in the scriptures who doesn't exhibit perseverance and endurance? Sometimes actually translated patient endurance. When the writer of the Hebrews told his readers, don't throw away your confidence. He went on to say, you need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what he's promised. In other words, we need to keep on keeping on. And the great example of this is Jesus himself. The writer of Hebrews again, Let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so you won't grow weary or lose heart. Now, I'm going to make these points very, very quickly because uh, I knew that I was trying to get the court into a pint pot. But frankly, I want us to know about the need for patience and endurance and perseverance. If you're finding following Christ is demanding and an uphill struggle and it's testing your ability to keep going, it's not necessarily because you're doing anything wrong. It might well be because you're doing something right. Over the course of a lifetime, we can expect, frankly, long periods of plodding along, living out of obedience. Moses had 40 years of plod before much ever happened. <clears throat> Paul had many years set aside under house arrest Jesus himself was only in public for three years. It's part of a natural rhythm of life. There will be chapters, sometimes long, long chapters, where day after day after day after day, it's a story of our patient endurance and perseverance. Secondly, it is possible, as the writer of the Hebrew says, not always, but it is possible, that one of the things that's going on in times of hardship and perplexity and suffering is God is training us, teaching us to trust him. Because it is true, that is how our faith and our love and our trust in God grows stronger, isn't it? 
so that over the course of a lifetime, we can look over our shoulder, if you like, and see the times that God has been faithful in the past, which emboldens us to trust him for today and tomorrow. It's part of, of what God does in discipleship. And, and none of us likes reading in the book of Hebrews that this is part of God's discipline package for us, because we don't like that, and well, none of us like the word discipline much, but discipline and discipleship and discipling it, are all very much of the same root. I want to be treated by God as one of his children, and that being the case, he has the right to disciple me as he wants. And then thirdly, about this little package of endurance and patient endurance and perseverance, there comes a time for all of us when what will need to sustain us and fuel us and keep us going isn't the experience of today, but will be the hope of tomorrow. That's how it played out for Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy of eternity with Jesus, the joy of receiving the rewards that Jesus has for us, get us through the furnace of affliction. The best is yet to be. This is what God has been cultivating in our lives all along. Walking by faith, the faith walk is what delights his heart. And faith could stand for forsaking all, I trust him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you equip us as your disciples to run a good race. By no means have we talked about all the good things that you have for us. We are so glad for the company of one another, the fellowship of believers. We're so grateful for the Holy Spirit and the strength that he gives us. But we do thank you that you have reminded us of a number of things today. And we want to tell you, Lord, that our hearts belong to you. We'd like to refresh our commitment to you to say, Lord, as much as we can, we want to follow you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We thank you for the wisdom that comes from your word as you open our eyes. Please, Lord, give us confidence and a hunger for your wisdom. And give us the stickability to stick at it, that we persevere, whatever else is going on, that you would know that we will be reliable disciples every day of our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.